Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. If you wish to comment on this podcast, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you're still here at the end, I'll give you that email address again. Looking at the past and the future of farm broadcasting, I've had 46 years in the business as I retired in January of 2020, and my guest has had an almost equivalent length of time. We figure that in those years, we should have gotten something out of this that we can give you so that you don't have to learn it the hard way like we did. Now, times are different. We'll talk about that. But there are a lot of things that probably are the same today and tomorrow in agricultural journalism as what we experienced as much as 46 years ago. Joining me is Gary Truitt, who is the owner of the Hoosier Ag Today Network. Gary, what year did you get started in broadcasting? In radio in general, I mean, in, in commercial radio, it was uh, 1978. I did, I did radio in college, and then uh, after leaving college, I uh, started working at a uh, small radio station in uh, 250-watt AM station, 3,000-watt FM station in, in northern Illinois, and uh, uh, started out playing rock and roll, because that's all I wanted to do in, in, in radio. So it's uh, back in the late 70s, playing all that great classic rock back then. Well, that was good music, and of course, at that age, I can totally understand that. The music of that era still lives today, but what moved you toward agricultural news? It was really a very strange uh, set of circumstances, uh, uh, and it was not one that I chose uh, at, at all. Um, and so I guess that would be one of my uh, advice, you know, direction for young people is, is look for your opportunities. Uh, don't get you know, uh, locked into it, say, I'm going to just do this or just do that, because sometimes your your greatest opportunities come where you do not expect it. And working at the small radio station in a, count, in a county where agriculture was the largest industry, there's nothing around uh, the town of Morris, Illinois, except corn and soybean fields. And uh, over a period of time, I became the program director of this radio station. And back then, as to a lesser extent today, radio stations are concerned with serving their community and the interests of their community. And so one of the tasks I was given was to provide the information on our station that served our community, which, of course, meant the agricultural community. I did not come from an ag background, so to speak, didn't grow up on a farm. So I was at a bit of a loss. And so I went initially to the local ag banker in the town, and we put together a focus group of area farmers and I basically sat down with them and said what do you guys want what do you need from from the radio and they taught me what they wanted and what they needed and at that point I went searching for that information and discovered lo and behold there was a, such a thing and it was really just growing and beginning to expand at that point as farm networks there were the agricultural radio networks that had farm broadcasters that would deliver this great information to your local station uh, and so I picked up on that. Uh, uh, we affiliated uh, first with the Illinois Farm Bureau Radio Network, RFD Illinois. Alan Durand, uh, a longtime voice in, in NAFB, uh, 
was was running it at that point. Lou Hansen was uh, was or Hansen was part of his uh, team, and uh, we did that for a number of years. We then eventually moved over to the Brownfield Network uh, in the. Um, Late, or let's say early 1980s, uh, Brownfield was moving into Illinois, and and we moved over to to Brownfield. And as part of that, I you know became associated with the Brownfield Network. Had Derry Brownfield come out to our station and do a local speech, and just sort of connected with them. One day, lo and behold, as I got off the air, I was handed a piece of paper that said, clean out your desk, you're gone at five, the station's been sold. Those kind of things still happen, unfortunately, uh, today, just ask the iHeartRadio people that. <laughs> and so, I was out of a job, uh, and so I had a wife to support, and so I decided I needed to find another radio gig, so I called my buddy, Derry Brownfield, of the Brownfield Network, and said, hey, any, any of your affiliates want to, want to, you know young energetic radio person and he said well let me look and he called me back in a while and said hey i got a job opportunity for you i said great what station is he said i want you to come to work for me and i said what and i said i'm i'm not a farm broadcaster i don't I barely know anything about farming he's and he says yeah i know that's the problem he had was he had people on the air who knew agriculture but didn't know radio, things like formats and clocks and, and, and those kind of things. And agriculture, farm broadcasting at that point in the, the early 80s was moving from more personality-driven, which had been the driving force in his industry for decades, to more information-driven. Uh, this is being, of course, this is the height of the ag recession, the uh, Russian grain embargo and 21% interest rates and bankruptcies and farm made and all those kinds of things taking place at that point and so farmers really needed more information on business side rather than this production side of things and so the network was was trying to move in that direction Derry and Clyde were, were trying to sort of move their programming that way so uh, they took me out to Jefferson City Missouri and we talked and the next thing I knew I'm working for the Brownfield Network and the deal was I would would teach them radio and would would develop their programs and their formats and their just the whole network operation, and they would teach me farm broadcasting, and that's that was the deal. In that process, I fell in love with farm broadcasting. I, it was great. It was exciting. The people in agriculture were tremendous. They would they would listen to you because you had information. They trusted what you said. Uh, you know, people would would come up to you then, and they still do today. Will come up and and thank you for what you do. That does not happen in any other part of broadcasting that that I am aware of. People that walk up to the local news guy and say thank you for for doing a great job. They do that in agriculture, and that. That hooked me. At that point, I said, this is a business I want to be in because this is important. This is responsibility. You have uh, a job to, to help these people make a living and produce the food and fiber for the world. And so that was what bit me back in 1981 when I joined NAFB, became a member, a farm broadcaster with, uh, with NAFB. And that still is what gets me out of bed every morning today, uh, knowing that there are farm families out there that are going to turn on their radio and and depend on a farm broadcaster to 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 get the information they need to help run their their farm and that's how i got bit and at that point uh i fell into farm broadcasting and have been in it ever since and and totally enjoy it here you hit on a number of areas i think that are important to anybody right now there are a number of people who are farm broadcasters who started in sports 
um, several who had an initial love for radio. I recall one of our past presidents, Johnny Hood, who was a radio engineer, and uh, they moved into our business. One of the facts and the realities of farm broadcasting is it will make a living for you, and if you fail in your competition, if you want to put it that way, to be a sportscaster, um, you can move into our industry. Um, also, I think another one is that radio is uncertain. Uh, radio has always been uncertain, but more today than ever in the past. I am one of those victims, if you, I want to call myself that, which I rarely do, of the cutbacks that go on at uh, some of these entities. And you just have to be prepared for it and move on from it. Let me ask you something else. Who were your initial mentors? I had a couple in Rich Hull at the Kansas Ag Network. That was my second one. And the first one was Russell Pearson, who hired me in 1974 in Oklahoma City at WKY Radio and Television. Who were yours? Uh, well, at the risk of blowing your head up even bigger than it already is, I would say you were one of them. Uh, I did not have a good mentor. Derry Brownfield was very good uh, to observe and to learn from the things to do and sometimes the things not to do. Uh, but he did not take an active mentorship role. He sort of threw me in and said, see you later, and would <laughs> he had other things to do. And and so uh, I did not have a lot of on-site people that were giving me a lot of direction. So I I reached out and just did a lot of observing and listening. And, and you know, hanging with you and, and Rich Hull uh, were, were, you know, good people to, uh, you know, to, to, to follow. And so I uh, got a lot of uh, direction at that point. A good friend of ours, John Oaks at USDA, who was the, uh, the, the press secretary for the Secretary of Agriculture, was very good at working with farm broadcasters and providing us some directions. Jerry Passer uh, in Iowa was sort of, I mean, this, this guy was a, a, a bulldog when it came to getting stories. And he, along with Doug Cooper, they would break stories and get things. Uh, and, and it was to the point where when they would walk in a press conference, the people up front would start sweating because uh, they didn't know what these guys knew and what they were going to ask. And so uh, Jerry was, was uh, a guy that I really uh, – watched and and saw what he did and learned from uh those 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 folks and and then just listening to um folks that uh how they delivered the news the passion they had for it uh you know orion samuelson of course uh, everybody uh, you know sort of uh, admires not how orion sounds but just the way he he delivers his product and and uh, and, and relates to his uh, his audience bill mason was big jack crowner was was a, a big voice uh, and literally a big voice at that time ed johnson uh was was a very good mentor of mine through a number of uh points of my career and was very helpful and uh giving me some direction on not only farm broadcasting, but on the network business uh, as well. So uh, I didn't really have a mentor that worked with me, but I just observed and looked at and watched what other people were doing and say, hey, I can do that, or I see how that would benefit my audience. And, and th- you know, put all those things together and find your own style. You know, other people say, I want to sound like this person or I want to sound like that person. Uh, you really need to find your own voice, find your own style, which oftentimes can be a, an amalgamation of a lot of different styles and, and things that people do. And you just need to listen and learn and, and find a, a system that works for you. I'm loving everything you say here because it is all so true. And 
You said first you had no mentor, then you listed five, one of them questionable, I might add. But from this point forward, I'd like to ask you some questions that I want to also answer and then invite you to ask me a question or two if you wish to, and we'll move on through. How do you prepare for an interview, Gary? Um, probably not very well. Uh, I, there, I do not actually sit there and formulate my questions. I don't write out my questions. Some people do that, and, and I really don't. Because the kind of interview I like to have is more of a conversation. Uh, you know, I, and I tell my guests that. I said, Let, let's, you know, don't worry about what you say. We can go back and edit this. We can fix anything. And I said, you know, we're not out to, to pin you and make you look bad. And that's what separates farm broadcasting, I think, from sometimes the general media. We're not, we're not it's not an adversarial type of, of relationship with our, with our guests. We're out there to get information that our audience is, is interested in. So I try to stress a conversation. I will oftentimes try to know the subject. I will try to have in my head what the angle of my story is, um, uh, and I try to know the you know if we're talking about a product, if we're talking about an issue, you know, stay on top of those things, read those things, uh, you know, know what is going on with that particular issue or with that particular product. So do a little bit of research uh, enough, but again. You're not the expert. You're not, you need to be enough of an expert to get your guest to give you the information. And that's really the, the focus I try to bring to an interview, that I'm not the star. I'm not the one with the information. If I had all the information, I don't need to do the interview. I need that per- person, the interviewee, to tell their story and tell the information about the product. And try to get them to do that in a natural and conversational kind of way, which sometimes is difficult when their, their boss or their agency gives them talking points that they have to follow and so sometimes you try to have to figure out how to get around that oftentimes a trick i use is uh usually the first question is always a fluff question because everybody's a little nervous to start with so i I always ask a a real fluffy question that i'm going to throw away anyway to to start uh and and then sometimes i'll make a statement rather than ask a question just make a statement and get them to react to it a lot of times when people react to something it's a bit more of a natural sound they don't have a prepared answer so whether that's a a statement of challenge or a statement um uh, about the the product or the issue, uh, getting them to react to something can, can sometimes be set, can sound a little better than that because again, with radio in particular, it's all about the how they answer. Not as much it is what they say, but how they say it is is also going to make your story a lot better. Gary, I came from a different perspective than you in the fact that I did talk radio and I did AgriTalk for seven years, which was a conversation. But it was an intense conversation, and it was all live. And then on the other side, like you, I was in the network business and in the small radio business to where that I wanted actualities from them that were pretty succinct. So first of all, I always try to be as up-to-date as I can on information. And that just requires you to read everything that comes across every day and to try to be aware of the nuances if you possibly can but many of those are hard because um, if you're talking to the ag chemical companies and some others you just can't have as much background in that as they have 
Um, secondly to that... Especially nowadays with all the science in there. I mean, there's it's like going to physics class or chemistry class all over again. So it, it can be very challenging to, to know some of this stuff. And I say, I don't try to know this stuff. I try to get them to explain it. And again... One of the challenges is explaining it in, in layman's language, you know, which I think you guys always did a good job of at AgriTalk was you got folks to, to get past the science and get down to what does this actually mean? And that was that's, that's important. Yeah, you are definitely right. But it took a while. Uh, when you bore in on questions, uh, even though you're friendly, uh, you want answers. And I try never to answer. I try never to ask a question to which I do I try never to ask a question to which I already know the answer. I try my best to ask questions that inform me, and I call myself progressive. In other words, if I ask you a question that's shallow, and then I think I understand it, I want to go a little deeper. And, of course, I've got an objective here, not to make them look bad, but to get as much information out as I can and get them past these media training talking points. Because there are so many blind advocates out there that think that that is all they should do. And it's what they shouldn't do, in my view. They should talk to us, because of the kind of media we are, directly about the real issues without the BS that, in many cases, they're trained to put out or the vectoring away, bridging away to their points that they seem to try to do. But in the end, I think... I always like to walk away from it with mutual respect. I respect them for what they know and how they say it, and hopefully they respect me for what I ask and my intentions of using it if it's not live at the moment. Let me ask you another question. Uh, do you want to respond to that one? Well, yeah, so I want to ask you a question about the difference between, because you've, I've done pretty much network, uh, you know, from broadcasting my whole career. Uh, what, did you find a difference in the way you approached a story, the way you approached an interview when you have an hour or two hour long talk show versus, you know, 30, 45 seconds to tell a story in a, in a network soundbite? Because those are two totally different environments uh, and really represent a, uh, a totally different style and totally different need in terms of, of information uh, and, and interview style. You're right. And dispensing with the short form and only talking about the long term term the way that uh, we did AgriTalk. My producer, Rustin Hamilton, uh, and Julie uh, Strickland-Doan, uh, Mark Vale, Rich Hull, who were with me as we started AgriTalk and through the years, we tried to find topics that had controversy, just plain and simple. Because if you've got controversy, you've got multiple points of view about the same thing. And what we tried to do was get all those voices to chime in. We usually only got one point of view in the show, unless we brought in people from both sides of an issue, which was occasionally done, but challenging to do. But in general, we tried to make it to where we laid the groundwork at the beginning, hoping people would get interested. Because my friend Bob Dotson from NBC News says that you've got to hook them in the first two minutes or they're gone. And if we could get them interested in what we're talking about, then you start a progression of questions that inform and then inquire and then basically get down into the weeds until you start getting phone calls. And I allowed phone calls to shape the show. And I would let people on that I had no idea what they were going to ask. 
Uh, and I had more fun with it than the guests because the guests sometimes would hear a voice and think, oh, my God, it's my worst critic. This SOB has been after me for years, and here he's on the radio with me. And, you know, you broke down a lot of barriers, but you got people to respond very honestly, very directly. And by the end of the show, everybody's gasping for breath, but I found that most people describe the show as something they leaned in to listen to. And I think that is the mark of a good show that you're very interested in what's being said. And in a case of some people actually participating. Now, in talk radio, the reality is most people never call. Only about 8% of our audience told us they had ever even thought about calling. So you only get a few to come in. But if you get the jewels and you get the good questions, then they can totally revolutionize what you're talking about because they had a perspective that you wouldn't have gotten from your guest and you don't know yourself. So that was a challenging program. Nobody seems to want to do that since the day I left in 2001, but they're still on the air and I'm not. And you raise a point because I see talk radio or talk shows today being different where now the focus is the 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 guest i mean you listen to and what the guest think or not the get the host and what the host thinks you, you get very little guests you get very few phone calls anymore it's more of a monologue so do you see that that the talk shows have changed from when you from what you know what they used to be and what you were doing back in uh, you know 10 15 20 years ago well, the reality is the host is there to keep that show together. And if you're bringing on guests, in many cases, you're bringing on them to confirm the views of the host. I mean, that's kind of the way Limbaugh always worked. You know, he always brought the guest on to give him a chance to uh, expound on something even at greater length or a few moments to rest his voice while they talked and then keep moving on. Agritalk was only 39 minutes, actually, in the course of an hour. So we had a sprint rather than a three-hour marathon that you have with most talk radio now. And our goal of it was always to try to get as much dynamic as we could into the program as quickly as possible. But the bottom line, Gary, is that my management lost the capability to stand up to what took place after that show was over because we had advertisers and associations who would just go ballistic on why did you bring that topic up? Why did you do that? And they would roll dollars over in their head thinking I'm never going to get any advertising from these people because of what we've done on this show. But the bottom line really was that we had a huge audience and that audience is what our stations wanted. They wanted numbers, and that's what our advertisers want, is numbers. So they may tell you one thing from even a company that's advertising with you, that they don't want you to talk about something, or they'll imply that you talked about it, and therefore they are in opposition to you. But really what they want to do is reach that audience. But um, we didn't have the capability to have our ownership stay with us. And I think that's why that uh, the model, which has been used from that point forward and is sustainable, I might add, is such that you dial out these extremely 
controversial programs that have a potential sponsor in them or a strong uh, active association in them, such as the beef industry, uh, and you move towards something that's a little more milk toast, but you can talk about things in a friendly way rather than really getting into the heat of some of the hottest issues of the day. Let me ask you something here. You and I were in the vanguard, kind of the first wave of ag reporters to travel and to send in reports from around the world. And I don't know why you got on your first trip. I know why I did, because Rich Hull uh, was able to talk to John Oakes, who was the press secretary for John Block in 1981, and asked Mr. Oakes uh, how they were going to uh, work with media when the Secretary of Agriculture traveled around the world. And they told us that you had to buy a seat uh, on the jet with them and that you could go everywhere with them, but you had to pay your own way. And it was thousands of dollars. And so Rich found the money, and on the first trip, which was to uh, Korea, Japan, and China in 1981, he sent me. How did you wind up going on these? Well, I think because uh, obviously your first trip in 1981 was successful uh, as far as USDA was concerned. And John Oakes uh, decided, hey, this this works and we need to have more uh, farm broadcasters uh, on this trip. So it was beginning in about 1982. Uh, that John Oakes should have called me out of the blue one day. I had been working with John Oakes, and, and as I said, he was sort of the one of the early my early mentors and, and people that I really looked up to. And uh, at Brownfield, we've been you know working with this, the him covering the Ag Secretary domestically, um, and it really came out of the blue and and said, "Hey, you've got the opportunity to do this." And for somebody who had been in farm broadcasting for like two years at that point and had never been out of the country in my life and never had any dreams of being out of the country in my life. This was, this was like, you know, this miracle from heaven, like, holy crap. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, I went to, uh, to my management. I said, Hey, we need, you know, I need a couple thousand dollars to do this. And, uh, they went out and found some sponsors and, uh, <clears throat> and let me go. And, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, they, I think they were thrilled. This was something new. Uh, folks at Brownfield always like to be on the cutting edge of things. And so, uh, it, it was literally my first trip was to South America. I remember, uh, I was totally unprepared for what I was to experience, how I was to report. I actually took two cassette recorders because I, I'm a big editor. I like to edit everything, so I, I knew I wanted to edit some of this audio. So again, you know, we weren't we were using these big moat, uh, boat anchor Marantz uh, cassette recorders. Each one weighed about ten pounds, I swear, and I had two of them in my in this giant bag i hauled all over the the place and uh it was a tremendous experience uh we went through and went to central and south america and just it was an eye-opener experience and to do reports and i learned as i went i learned what to do i learned what not not to do uh rich hall was on that trip with me and i watched what he did and learned from what he did harry martin was on that trip and uh, i i you know learned from him and then just took cues from the news side of things i've been around news people and seeing how news 
people, both uh, locally and, and nationally, uh, you know, covered news and, and did things. And so I took some cues there and um, just sort of plunged ahead somewhat uh, in the dark, not knowing if I was doing things right or wrong. But it was a tremendous experience. I loved it and was the first of many. Uh, you and I got to travel, I know, to a couple of years later, going to the Middle East. And uh, uh, so it, it is uh, it was a tremendous experience. Uh, I have since had you know, travels to many, many continents. And again, as a farm broadcaster, uh, that's a tremendous opportunity that you're probably not going to get in other areas of broadcast. And it is, it is a life changer. It is to- will totally change your perspective on yourself, on the world, and certainly on, on agriculture. So it, uh, it's certainly one of the high points of my career. Let me fill in a hole here. John Oaks, that we both speak of, had been with the Illinois Farm Bureau. He and Max Armstrong had worked together. And uh, John Block was Secretary of Agriculture under Reagan beginning in 1981, and he was from Illinois, and so he asked John Oakes to be his press secretary, that's what it was called at the time, and from that point on, that's the connection that we had. So you, you have to have a connection with people. Um, along with that, however, is the need for the entity with whom you're traveling to get their message out. We bring credibility. That's a true statement. You already have defined how much your audience relates to you. And if you and I could go on a trip and our audience knew that we were there and we were seeing things firsthand, they had a a strong indication to believe it. And the people we traveled with, Gary, were always accessible and we all worked as a team I mean, there were times on these trips, and by the way, these trips are hard. Um, you may think that's BS, but I'll tell you what, you swap half of the country. You, you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, those those 4 a.m. <laughs> luggage calls after you've been up till midnight uh, editing audio, and again, the time zone changes kill you. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a long two weeks. You come home a pretty wiped-out puppy dog. And the technology you were mentioning, of course, i got to tell you one quick story. And that was Rich Hull, who was reporting in to me because I was back at home with the Kansas Ag Network when he was on the road with John Block. And I said, how's it going? And he said, oh, it's going all right. But he said, that little bastard Truett is killing me. And I said, why? He said, oh, hell, he's got two recorders with him. They're about the same size he is. And he just works his ass off every day. And I can't keep up with him. So you take that for what it's worth. But another thing of the period is that their ability to communicate back to this country was very difficult. And phone lines were all we had. So throw out all of the technology of today and consider that everything that came back um, that could be immediate was off a telephone line. And um, I recall that we moved through Central America one time, and we went into El Salvador, which was having their major conflict at the time, and we were very glad to get out of there. And we had gone from Guatemala, where we had a very nice visit, uh, saw some countryside, talked with government, left there, and then we wound up after the one day in El Salvador going into Venezuela, We land in Venezuela, and we find out they've had a revolution in Guatemala right after we left. 
But we did not know any of that until we got two countries away from there. Now everything is instant everywhere, and the news cycle, as I say, is six minutes from the time something happens anywhere in the world until we know about it. Yep. I remember one, we were in Algeria, and we found out there was one phone line in Algeria back to the United States that, that we could use, and it was in the U.S. ambassador's house. And so his wife let us come into her living room, and we set up all our equipment on her living room table and, and with literally alligator clips plugged into her, her telephone that we promptly took apart uh, to send our, our stories back. But, and, and, uh, but to, to bring up your point— Things today are different. We've got we've got Ted McKinney out there doing the same thing that John Block did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. That is selling at U.S. agriculture around the world to develop our export markets. Because back then it was the Russians that were giving us trouble. Now it's the Chinese. But it's interesting how it is getting differently covered today. You know, um, it, 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 Ted will call and have a nice media call back from South America, China, India, wherever he happens to be. And lots of farm broadcasters will be on the line. They'll listen to the telephone. They'll re- record it and put it in their broadcast. The difference is you're only getting one perspective. You're getting Ted McKinney's perspective. And right. Ted's good, and I, I like Ted. He's, he's a good personal friend and all that. But that's the one thing that, that as farm broadcasters, when we went, we provided a, an independent viewpoint that that's many times complemented what was actually going on with U.S. agriculture, but provided uh, some some challenges sometimes too. I know when we were in China and in, in Hong Kong that you know we were given a bunch of BS by the the Chinese government, and those of us in the media were able to point that out in our broadcast. The U.S. officials couldn't say that, but they could. The U.S. ag attaché on the side would tell us the stuff off the record, and then we could go and and put it into our broadcast and really give folks a true picture of what's going on. I I feel that is missing a little bit in the kind of coverage that we're getting today uh, of, of U.S. agriculture around the world. I'm talking with Gary Truitt, who is a farm broadcaster of uh, many decades and is the owner of Who's Your Ag Today radio network. One other thing about this world travel that I want to point out to younger broadcasters now is that just what you have said about perspective is so important. Even when we were traveling there, we would get caught in a situation where they wanted to keep you in the embassy or a hotel room all the time because the secretary wanted to meet face-to-face with people, and they didn't necessarily want to show you their country. So as a result of you only getting that limited view, you had a hard time being able to get out and see the country. Uh, When I was in uh, Korea, the first stop of the first trip with John Block, We were in the embassy, and they were serving us boiled carrots and roast beef, and they had been basically catering to the Americans in this fashion. This was in 1981, uh, since the Korean War. And I said, I don't want to eat this. I want to eat the food that the people of the country eat. I want to see Seoul if I possibly can. And so they kind of looked at me, and apparently very few people had asked this sort of thing, and So they got us one of their uh, nationals that was with um, the embassy and said, would you take Ken and go out to to dinner at a local place? And a couple of other people joined us, and we went off to a place that served. uh, uh, We walked in, and it was kind of like a bar, and they lit a fire, a propane fire in the middle of our table, and they started cooking bulgogi 
serving us kimchi and other things, and we got to get a feel for what was going on in the country. Then we also got this national to open up and talk to us more and give us a perspective. But Gary, do you agree that if you've been there and you've seen more, not everything, but more than you would have if you'd stayed in the U.S. and been on a phone call, that when the next story comes up about that country or about agriculture or about trade, you have a broader perspective than those people who haven't been along on a trip? Uh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I can tell a similar story when I was uh, traveling again with the Ag Secretary. We were in Israel, and uh, they were keeping a really tight rain on on us and uh at one point uh, several of us had really had enough of of just being shepherded around and, and having our day planned for us by the israeli pr department so we literally bribed our driver they had given us a driver we had a, a driver and a nice beautiful white mercedes that they took us around in and we bribed him to uh, to, to leave the itinerary and take us out into the countryside and show us what was really going on. And so we got to see stuff that was not on the agenda. So yeah, sometimes you got to push a little bit to uh, to get that. But yeah, you get you get a perspective. You really do. It, it's as I mentioned that earlier. It, it is a life changing experience. You get a perspective on yourself. You get a perspective on the world and on agriculture. It really gives you a, a it, we can, how how much of a world industry this really is, and how the rest of the world sees. U.S. agriculture, both positively and negatively. And that, that's a story that you don't get here at home. In the mid-1980s, uh, we had the opportunity for NAFB to form a group that uh, traveled to the Soviet Union. We were independent of any political figure or any ag organization sponsoring it. It was just us. But we were able to set up an itinerary and travel around the country and, of course, that is the period when the Soviet Union was opening up. And uh, we were literally the first ag reporters of any numbers to go into the interior and to see the country and to see the people directly. And it opened my eyes tremendously. Now, that was the past. Two years ago, NAFB did this again. Basically, Tom Brand reacting to the stories of those of us of that era and although he almost didn't get people in, they went to China. And uh, I'm very pleased that that has started again. But it costs you money. It takes time. We have a lot of young farm broadcasters who are one-person operation now. So, Gary, I think the opportunity is still there. It's just in a little different form. Yeah, it, it's harder. It's as limited. I mean, it's harder to, to in one respect, the technology has certainly made it easier to, to do it now than it was uh, back then. But uh, it is a bit more challenging. But if you get the opportunity, if, if you can find the money, if you can find the sponsors, if uh, even if you have to dig into your own pocket, uh, you, it's, it's an experience that is, is worth it, believe me. Let me wrap up with one more general question and whatever back from you. Um, the Internet. You said it did make uh, uh, communicating easier. Um, but has the Internet made it better? <laughs> it's the word better I struggle with, I guess. Yes and no. Uh, certainly has made it easier to communicate. It, it certainly has brought timeliness to it. Uh, certainly it has benefited our audience in that uh, farmers can now get 
information faster. They can get it in more ways. They can get it in in text form, picture form, audio form, uh, video form. Uh, so in that respect, it has benefited uh, the audience, uh, and, and that's the goal. Our company from the, has always been uh, very much uh, trying to be on the forefront, not the the bleeding edge, but the leading edge of technology. And, and so I've been. Uh, producing and, and pushing newsletters uh, for, for decades. Uh, now social media uh, is, is out there, and we do that. We have a podcast, and we have a newsletter, and we have a website, and we have all kinds of social media stuff, a lot of which I, I don't understand at this point. So we see ourselves as information providers. Uh, you know, we started out as broadcasters, and, and you know, a lot of us still think of ourselves ideally as a broadcaster. But really, we are information providers, and broadcast is just one way we, we push the information. There are other pipelines available now that do reach people. And so I like to push our information, and I, I give this lecture to my staff uh, every day. Push that information down all those pipelines and let the audience decide how they want to receive it. If they want to flip on their radio while they're in the field and hear the latest news, great. If they want to go onto a website or they want to listen to a podcast on their phone or a tablet in their tractor, um, they make that choice. And as long as we are there with the information in whatever form they want, um, then that's, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. To, so you know, there's this thing a lot of times in farm broadcasting, and I think our industry and association has been particularly guilty of this, is saying, oh, the Internet's the enemy. No, it's not. It's just another tool out there. Uh, and so we need to embrace that tool, use that tool, extend our brand into that tool, that we are, in the, at the end of the day, information providers, and we need to deliver that information to folks however they want it delivered. And Radio is still, as our research will show, still a vital way farmers, young and old, get information. But it is not the only way that they're getting it on social media. Uh, as I was at Commodity Classic last week and uh, learned that YouTube is one of the, the most popular social media channels for farmers. So, uh, you know, let's face it, our audience will tell us when and where they want information. And as farm broadcasters, it is up to us to use whatever we can to deliver that information to our people. Uh, you know, the, the, the dollars and cents at the end of the day will sort them, themselves out right now. Our company still exists on radio. Uh, we, we could not exist without uh, radio advertising dollars. The Internet dollars aren't there. Has Internet had an impact on us? Yes, but we see it still as a tool rather than a, than a, a, a competitor. Let me give you my perspective on this of the Internet from an area that you really didn't touch on, and that is the Internet now has given more people access to put information out to a broad audience. In our case, broadcasting um, was by radio, by television, and of course print. But in the Internet age, an individual with a point of view can reach a huge number of people with, with biased or with totally false information. And I run up against people, Gary, who say, you put out fake news because you're in media. And my argument for farm broadcasters is just the opposite. You know who we are. 
Our reputation depends upon us telling you the facts as we have assessed them in our stories, our travels, our background, and we have to be able to live off of our credibility. Otherwise, we have nothing. So I am very concerned about the accusations of fake news when the person who's making them is much more likely to want to pick up news that confirms what they already think whether that, rather than news that is the facts from which they'd have to draw a different conclusion. How do you take that? I, the first question I ask anybody when they will make a statement to me is, I say, what's your source? Because it comes down to if you're getting your information from a non-credible source, then all of a sudden, I don't care what it is that you say, it may well be true, it may well be mm-hmm. fake, but it is suspect in my mind if I don't trust the source. And farm broadcasting for 75 years has been a trusted source for farmers with the interests of farmers at hand. And so to, to say that our industry engages in fake news uh, is, is bogus because there's absolutely no proof in fact of that because we have this long history of credibility of serving uh, agriculture and so the anybody out there with a megaphone if you you can have an opinion and a cell phone and and a facebook account and you can become an expert but again if you have no credibility and that's what people need to start asking that there's all kinds of stuff out there on regular media, on social media, on the web. Uh, but what's the source? Uh, if, if that source does not have credibility, then that's when you need to really be suspect in terms of the news that's out there. Yeah, it used to be you could trust any news that's out there. Now you can't do that. Uh, and I think fake news is is more prevalent in the mainstream media than in, in, in agriculture. But still, we've got our folks in agriculture that are, are groups and activist groups and, and even some farmers out there that are putting out uh, news that is, is not credible, it's not vetted, it's not accurate, it's disingenuous. Uh, so I come back to that credibility issue that that you raised farm broadcasters have that credibility we got to lean on that we got to promote that we've got to talk about that more and and distinguish ourselves as a a media source to say we are a trusted credible media source uh in fact we just changed the the moniker for both our networks our indiana network and our michigan network to include the word credible in it because that's one of the points that we want to, to to stress is that you can trust us what we're doing is not giving you fake news not giving you advocate speech we are giving you credible information and we've we've got to we got to we got to hang our hats on that because that's the only thing we've got as farm broadcasters to really survive this Gary Truitt you have been through a great deal in farm broadcasting it's just most most interesting to follow your history up to your points of view of the present. You also have been one who has shaped this industry without a doubt and are a leader with your people in being able to make it still relevant to farmers of a totally different generation than when you and I started. And I hope that anybody who made it this far with us sees that we are interested in the success of the people who are farm broadcasters of today and tomorrow. But In order to be able to do a good job, you have to have the skills, uh, the backing, the confidence to be able to step forward and do your job. If any of you want to contact either one of us, 
uh, I would certainly be glad to give out my email to you. It's simple, kenroot, K-E-N-R-O-O-T, at gmail.com. And if you are an NAFB member, you can find us on our website. Gary, what about you? Yeah, I would second that. Uh, we will talk to, to young people at any time. We do a lot with, uh, uh, we provide internships and, and really try to work with you know, with young people who want our, and, and express an interest in this business. And um, um, I have hired young people uh, who have a passion and, and desire to, to be in agriculture. That's one of my first questions is, I, I don't really care as much about your radio experience. Do you have a passion for agriculture? Do you want to be in this, this business? That, that's a key. So certainly anybody who wants to talk about the future of this industry, uh, I'm a big believer in it. Um, I just bought a new network a year ago, believing in the future of agriculture. Uh, so I, I really hope that this new generation of communicators who will do things differently. I don't expect folks to, to, and I hope they don't do things the way we did it. I hope they'll learn from a few of our mistakes as well as our successes and, and move forward. But anybody who wants to contact me at any time, G Truitt, that's G T as in Tom, R U I T T, at who's your today.com. That's H O O S i e r a g t o d a y dot com uh, is my email address. Feel free to. to Shoot me a, a message anytime you want to talk or want more information. Glad to, glad to visit with you. Gary Truitt, thank you very much for commenting on your career and uh, issues of past, present, and future. We'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to... Ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.